Howard W. French, author, Twitter handle H.O. French. It's a pleasure um, to be speaking with you today here at the Norfolk. Um, uh, Howard is the author of China's Second Continent, which I read one weekend after receiving it very kindly. Howard, I'd first like to touch on the book because it's this wonderful part travelogue through hard-to-visit African places. Um, what gave you the idea to put this together? When did the genesis of the idea come together? Uh, thank you, first of all, Ali Khan. It's great to be with you. I'm a fan of yours on Twitter, too. Well, so. I'm a fan of yours, too. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, we've picked up stuff from each other. It's That's been right. very pleasurable. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I worked for the New York Times for many years. I was a correspondent in, in, in West and Central Africa in, in the 90s. Um, and then I went to Asia. I worked in Japan for five years and then China for six years. And while I was in China, I, I lived in Shanghai as a bureau chief there and in an in a, in a office complex uh, that had been one of the first Western property developments in Shanghai after the opening of the country. And as such, it was the sort of favorite venue of visiting foreign head of state delegations. And my office looked out upon the entrance to this office complex. It was a hotel office complex. And I began to notice in the sort of er, middle of the last decade the arrival uh, of more and more African delegations. So we're talking two or four, two or five. That's right. Mm -hmm. More and more African delegations, head of state delegations mm -hmm. to China. And having spent most of my life up until that point involved with Africa, I thought, you know, sure, there's something interesting going on here. Let me find out what it, what it is. Mm -hmm. And this led to me doing a series for the New York Times about this burgeoning new relationship between post-reform China and, and Africa. And so I went off and I did a three-country series for, for the New York Times. In 2008, I left the Times and I joined Columbia University's Faculty of Journalism. Uh, and I did a piece then, shortly afterwards, uh, for Atlantic Magazine, in which I traveled. I took the Tazara Railroad uh, all the way across Tanzania to the terminus in Zambia and then overland by road into the Congo. Uh, and what, what year was that? So that was in 2009. Mm. Um, I set off to do a piece that was sort of generically about this big relationship between China and Africa, but I discovered during that trip at sort of a very sort of close ground level this phenomenon of just explosive Afri Chinese immigration or migration to Africa. And although my Atlantic piece wasn't about that per se, this planted the bug in my mind to do a piece that looks about not just the big relationships that are being forged, but the sort of undercurrent of human relationship via migration that was taking place uh, of Chinese people essentially coming to Africa to set up shop t to, to build new lives here. I, I found that fascinating and a number of things I learned actually about that immigration. First of all, you estimate it to be about a million uh, immigrants. I tweeted it today and somebody came back to me and said, Ali Khan, it's way higher than that. So, you know, do you feel a million is the right number? I used a million in the title only because um, that's the... in in the academic conferences and the various kind of talking shops mm. about this subject, that's the commonly bandied about number, but no one really knows. Mm. In the book, I actually say my own rough guess, based on my own anecdotal sense of thing, traveling through more than 15 countries in the year on yes. the ground that I reported this book, is probably two million is closer to the number, but we, we really don't know. I mean, there may be 100,000 Chinese in Nigeria alone, uh, maybe more. There may be 100,000 uh, or close to 100,000 in Zambia. Mm. Um, so that's two out of 54 African countries. You know, uh, if you begin to do the math, 
it comes it becomes apparent very quickly that a, that a million probably is insufficient. And what I found interesting, whilst we just dwell on that immigration saga, is that it, it, you were you were saying that a lot of these people all came from one particular part of China, not a particularly prosperous part of it. And I found that quite interesting because when I look back at our history four or five generations ago from India, similar sort of story, unhappy with the economy there. In those days it was Gujarat coming out here for better opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so is that correct that the, that the majority of these immigrants are coming from a particular area? There's something happening there that's driving them towards Africa? So what happened is in the middle of the 1990s, China begins to survey the world and it says to itself, We've had a fantastic run since the late the end of the 70s when Deng Xiaoping begins to reform the economy. We have set up um, local investment zones in China that run on a capitalist basis, and we've attracted capital from, in the first instance, from Hong Kong, and then from Taiwan, and then from um, foreign Chinese communities in the Western United States and in Australia and other places to jumpstart our economy on a kind of globalized capitalist level. That carried us so far. In the 90s, the Chinese had the foresight to understand that whatever their great success initially, that would only take them so far in the future. Mm -hmm. And so they said, we have to go out into the world and capture our own markets. We, have to, we, have to, we can't just be the recipient of inward investment. We have to be the agents of economic activity around the world. And they selected Africa as a priority zone via a very astute calculation, which said, look, you know, at post-Cold War, the West is preoccupied in other places. There's this huge continent called Africa, a billion people, where the West essentially is not you know, behaving in any particularly vigorous or, or imaginative way. This is the place where we can strike. We can capture these markets. We can beat the sort of tepid Western competition and, and our um, fledgling uh, corporations that would like to become global brands, they can establish themselves in Africa. And so the Chinese government in 1996 sets forth formally a policy called going out. Mm. Uh, Jiang Zemin was the president there. And he tells uh, the, the way the Chinese system works is that the center, meaning Beijing, the Communist Party, creates policy and sets priorities. And then makes the, the, it rates mm. the provinces on the basis of how well they perform according to various policies. And so going out becomes a policy and the provinces are set into competitive motion against each mm -hmm. other in terms of who gets the most business in this new priority realm called China, called Africa. And so you see African uh, countries becoming the scene of great economic prospecting by Chinese construction companies with the Chinese, the central government providing the financing for this. And, and, the, the, uh, and the state companies, which have a provincial, provincial identity and basis to them, start creating um, sorry, projects in one place after another. We've all seen them here in Africa. Railroads, stadiums, mm -hmm. airports, uh, ports, highway systems, sometimes housing developments, et cetera, et cetera. All built with Chinese state funding, all built by provincial level but state-owned companies coming from various places in China. The migration that has taken place subsequently mm -hmm. has largely been a feature or a factor of the companies that come from the provinces in China that have been relatively less developed. Yes. In other words, companies from Shanghai, which is very rich, or Tianjin, or they Beijing, or Guangzhou, would, yeah. where they're all relatively quite rich. These are all Eastern, prosperous Eastern Chinese places. They may have come to do business in, 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 in Africa, according to this watchword of go out. But the people from these provinces have 
pretty much good lives and great prospects back in China already. The people from Sichuan or Henan or Hunan or Hubei or Hebei, I'm sorry, some of these to an unfamiliar audience may sound like similar sounding names, but these are all the names of sort of central and central western provinces mm -hmm. in China where, where the economic takeoff has not happened as vigorously as on the eastern coast. They send their construction companies here, and the workers dis discover, wow, First of all, all of the myths and stereotypes that they have heard of Africa may, are, are largely untrue. Mm -hmm. There's not wild animals roaming the streets. You know, people are not necessarily attacking them or mobbing them or behaving in a xenophobic way. In fact, often being very friendly to them. There's all these economic opportunities that people with relatively low skill sets and relatively modest capital mm -hmm. can involve themselves mm -hmm. in. And so the people who came from these parts of China where, where, where opportunity had been relatively low or stifled come to an African environment, yes. and everywhere they look, they see opportunity. Yes. And so a 2,000-member construction crew may see 10% of its workers decide, well, I'm going to stay at the end of my two-year contract. I'm going to stay in Kenya, or I'm going to stay in Zambia, or Senegal, or where have you. And here's where the interesting thing takes place. As those initial arrivals, mm -hmm. as a result of this going-out policy, begin to set up shop in various African countries and have their own successes word seeps back to China that neighbor Joe or neighbor Lin or neighbor whoever, who you thought of as being a very ordinary guy, now he's rich. Mm. He, he, he created an ice cream factory in Malawi or a shoe factory in Zambia or got farming land in Mozambique or did what have you and has now made it. And he's sending pictures back home that is creating an emulation factor yes. where lots of other ordinary people from his same province, his own social set, are saying, wow, if he can do it, I can do it too. I'm going to Africa mm. too, also. And so each of those, you so know... So it's been a summoning power from That's these, right. Yeah. It's a pull factor mm. that has, I think, been the key, that yes. this emulation has really driven things exponentially and is not finished, by the way. This will continue into the future. Now, when I read your book, what seemed to me quite interesting was a differentiation between the Chinese, this million-man Chinese immigrant uh, community that has come, which in some ways, when you were, when you were doing these face-to-face -face interviews with, with a fellow in Mozambique, I remember very clearly, mm -hmm. um, some in West Africa, they were happy to be shot of the Chinese government. They saw this sort of African continent as a blank canvas where they could, you know, where they could live their life more fully. How do you, you know, I, people look at China as very monolithic. Is it, or, or who are, you know, are these, these, these people seem to me like renegade, you know, characters who were, you know, like anyone else looking to get away from the state. Is, am I wrong in that analysis? Um, so here's what's going on in the lives of this kind of character. They come from an authoritarian country that has provided in the last generation quite good returns for many of its people, from, for, for a great many of its people, right? But which is nonetheless repressive in many ways. Mm. First of all, along with authoritarian political power comes a lot of corruption. Mm. The state is always hitting, or the party is always hitting you up in one way or another mm. for money, for licenses, for payoffs, kickbacks, etc., etc., etc. Alongside of that, there's very little outlet for expression or criticism. You cannot openly, you can talk openly to your friends, but you cannot speak in a broader kind of social way about the frustrations of life or your, especially your criticism of the, of the state. They arrive in an African environment. Now, in the West, and even among many Africans, a prevailing sense of Africa is in, in many places. I don't want to speak too, in too broad a generalization, but in many places of how you know, corrupt things are. They arrive in an African environment, and they have quite the opposite impression, mm. that 
this is a freewheeling place that there there is nobody following them around. That that you know, yes, they may have to pay a bribe here or there, but it's not nearly as systematic or as uh, you know attentive mm. as the the f- type of corruption that they face in China. And so they've got a monkey off of their back. They can breathe freely and ex- exert their own kind of genius and ent- entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, and even talk freely about China if they wish to. That's there's, right, there's to you. To me all the time, yeah. and to each other, and to write about it online, for mm-hmm. that matter. That's how I found some of these people. So th- that's very interesting that you know we have this two-tier. We have the state operating in a certain manner, or this very flagship-type things where there's huge commitments to the continent, mm-hmm. and then this entrepreneurial class, which, like so many other entrepreneurial classes that have come to Africa, has done extremely well. Mm-hmm. Going, um, continuing with with your journey, which, by the way, was fascinating, was it started, I think, in Maputo, did it not? That's right. And then it, it was absolutely fabulous. I don't know West Africa as well as you did. but mm-hmm. uh, And my favorite piece of just from the travelogue was when you caught up with your brother. And I, you described spending a night in the desert, I think, in Namibia. Yeah, that's right. And you have the stars very close to you. And I, I remember that. It was, it was very powerful. Um, so congratulations Thank on you. that. Thank you. A couple of questions which I want to come back to. Given, you know, we've got this very big U.S.-Africa summit, if I can just touch on, I'm sure you're bored to bits being asked this question, but people tend to see it in a binary way, U.S. versus China in Africa. How do you you contextualize this? Um, Is it it a collision? Is it a (laughs) win-win? Uh, is Africa winning because we've got more trading partners than before? How would you, who holds, who holds the balance of power in this relationship? How do you see it? I, I think that um, Africa is entering into a moment of maximum possibility for itself. Mm. Not only has it been growing very fast for the last several years in general, mm. But as everyone knows, there are two other kind of boons that have taken place. There's a technological boon that has created a communications revolution for Africa mm-hmm. that has made Do it... you notice that yourself? Oh, absolutely. That has made it possible. Uh, you know, my wife is from West Africa, and yes. we were talking last night about how, uh, in the old days, when we lived in West Africa many years ago, how difficult it was to make an appointment with someone. You, yes. if you, either you catch them while they're at their desk or yes. you don't catch them yes. because, you know, they don't have, <laughs> that's the only way. And so you have to keep going back to their office and it's hit or miss on how much time, how much time you would waste in that process. That's gone now, yes. right? And this is just a very small piece of what it means to have had a communications revolution. So there's these, these technologies which are just completely erasing yes. all sorts of barricades and hurdles that had that had stymied Africa's mm. economic, the sort of momentum of life in Africa. Yes. Um, and that's really important. That's a great way to characterize it. At the same time, you have w- what a lot of people have commented on, which is this demographic b- boom yes. uh, that has risks to it, but which also yeah, but Everyone keeps saying it's a dividend, but it does have risks. It has risks, for sure. I mean, historically, if you've got lots of young men without a job... You've got trouble. Yeah, and so you asked me about win-win, which is actually a Chinese propaganda term, which which I have problems. Well, you were one of the few people who described it as such, and I'm tired of hearing it because it's really like a trope now. Yes, and it's patronizing. That it's you know, very patronizing. You know what we're doing is you know of equal benefit to mm. both parties. Well, nothing could be further from from for, 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 from being takeable for granted, if you will. Yes. Right, but it's there is a win-win 
prospect for Africa mm. in having so many international players be interested in Africa for s- at the same time. Mm. You know, in the in the Cold War, you essentially had two blocks that were yes. that were competing for Africa. Now you have a a kind of um, a, a, a multipolar world. It's mm. not just China. Mm. China is the biggest of the new players. Yes. But you have India, you have Brazil, you have Turkey. Turkey mm. is a big player in Africa today. That's right. You have Malaysia and Vietnam. Mm. You have all of these people who are uh, peoples who mm. are coming sort of uh, awakened mm. about Africa and what Africa means to the world. Mm. And this is an opportunity for Africa. Um, it's only meaningful, however, to the extent that African countries Unfortunately, the continent is as balkanized it is, yes. as it is, but it's getting only more me- getting more so. Only more meaningful to the extent that African countries understand that this is a perishable moment. Yes. The demographic dividend is perishable, and the fascination, this, this sort of nascent fascination yes. with Africa that we're seeing all over the world is perishable. Do you feel that our policymakers, African policymakers, appreciate that? Or do you think, you know, they think it's a lottery and this is, you know, the new normal? I'm afraid that too many, my sense is that too many people think that this is, you know, something they can take for granted. And it's, mm. you know, it's, it's something that's owed to them. Yes. That, you know, yeah, we've been neglected for all this time. They're finally awakening to us. Mm. You have to earn the sustained attention. It's one yes. thing to get the initial attention, but to, to keep the attention, you have to earn that. Yes. And that only happens via serious work. Mm. Making, first of all, serious calculations of what true national interests are. That means That's not, my biggest issue. I don't think many African governments understand what the national interest most is. Most African governments are very poor at that. What they have is the interest typically of a very narrow elite, elite that is yeah. essentially rent-seeking. Yes. You know, and the foreign partners... Have you seen change in that? The foreign well? partners can read this. Mm. They know what a rent-seeking elite is, mm. and they know how to play the game with a rent-seeking elite. And so this is very dangerous for Africa. Mm. I see here and there countries that are beginning to broaden their sense of what national interest is and yes. to think more seriously about this, but not enough of it. Who's the leader in thinking that way, in your opinion? Well... You know, I think you can make a fairly uh, uh, important um, uh, correlation between countries that have a kind of a genuine sense of democracy kind of coursing through their lifeblood and a ripening sense, not a mature yet, but a ripening sense of national interest. Yes. So in a place like Ghana, with all of its problems, yes, and Ghana yes. has had a lot of problems re- very recently very with recently, the yeah. currency, you know, and ex- this is a classic Ghanaian problem of, you know, um, coupling the election cycle with, mm. I- with irresponsible spending, mm. you know, so that the incumbent party can try to win the election. Mm. However, you've had a, a, a pretty interesting conversation with Ghana about managing resource, new resource wealth. I think this bodes well for the future. I think, you know, the, the 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 tapping of new resource wealth in East Africa, which is going to be massive, yes, I is think it will be. is at an earlier. You think it's going to be massive. It's a, I do, yes. but it's in an earlier stage in the in its life cycle mm-hmm. than it is in Ghana yet, and so it's hard to know mm-hmm. just how serious the national interest discussions are going to be in these places. I I wouldn't say that the initial signs are terribly encouraging. Yeah. Here, East Africa. no. That uh, you know, yeah, how do East Africa. You're talking from Mozambique. Obviously. I'm talking Mozambique, Tanzania, mm. Kenya, Uganda. That uh, you know, um, uh, the, I'm afraid that the idea of a windfall of mm. uh, essentially hydrocarbons. Yes. Um, it, you know, how, what this means and how to manage this properly and how to get the maximum benefit for a broad national interest. Yes. Has not been discussed and debated and 
most importantly, integrated into the kind of political mm -hmm. class That's discussion as it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, you know, so you have typically in these kinds of resource play situations uh, a 20 or 30 year window mm -hmm. where the known reserves are going to be drawn down. Mm -hmm. And yes, in some cases, new minerals and, or in some cases, that same resource will be more, more and more will be discovered. So 20 or 30 years doesn't express the full mm -hmm. life of it. But let's say you have a 20 or 30 year run in oil or gas or what have you, right? Mm. That's an opportunity to turn this underground wealth into above ground mm. wealth. What does above ground wealth mean? Above ground wealth means you have created a different kind of human landscape. You've created a population base that knows how to create wealth mm. through its own ingenuity, invention, labor, effort, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, mm. right? Uh, that comes via education. That comes via creating a a kind of predictable set of rules that are enforceable, that are unbiased, that are not regional or sectarian or partisan or tribal, etc. You know, uh, and, and frankly, there's not enough uh, of, of that kind of ethos yet in the East African discussion so far as I can tell.